brand founders and folks that work with brand owners to think differently about that? How would you set it up? What are some wins that you guys have experienced in the past on the agency side or on the brand side? I'm a mentor in um, the CMO at Igloo Coolers. And I'll never forget, he gave me this little nugget and he's now like the, the CMO of their Igloo Coolers holding company. He's like, it's all about everyone being in full alignment of what the brand is. Quick shout out from our sponsor, Sheer ID. Are you trying to boost conversions to your Shopify store? Need to drive more customer loyalty? Get results fast by offering exclusive discounts to consumer communities with Sheer ID. Sheer ID helps verify students, teachers, military, first responders, and so much more of these groups. With Sheer ID, you'll get a verified match in seconds, and you can spit out an exclusive discount for customers on the spot. Try speaking directly to a new customer segment with this verifiable identity without adding friction to the shopping experience. Continue to drive incremental revenue in the next 90 days post-purchase with more tailored messaging for your email and SMS campaigns. I personally tested ShareID to see just how easy it was to get set up, and I was pretty much ready to go in under 15 minutes. The onboarding was simple enough for me to follow as a non-technical person. Go to sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Once again, that's sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Hello and welcome back to e-commerce uncovered. I'm your host, Matt Lady. Thanks for joining if it's your first episode and welcome back if you're a returning listener. Each and every week, I'm oh so lucky I get to chat with and learn from a variety of passionate, intelligent founders, operators, and practitioners in the wonderful world of commerce. My mission with this show is to provide tactical and practical information and insight for D2C brands to grow profitably and sustainably. Today's episode is with not one, but two special guests. First up is the founder of Resident Consulting. She provides strategic services such as email and SMS automation, list growth tactics, segmentation, personalization, all to improve your e-commerce retention. Second is the former director of strategy at Common Thread Collective and current head of growth at Bobby, the only mom founded and led infant formula in the US. Without further ado, please welcome Mandy Moshe and Shereen Aubert. Welcome, ladies. There's all three ladies here now. How are we doing? <laughs> Thank you, lady. <laughs> Good to be here, lady. Thanks for joining. And uh, can you guys attempt to explain and tell the class and the listeners why all three of us are joining and we have two guests in one episode? Uh, what What is your two special connection and relationship and friendship? How did it all First start? of all... First of all, the reason that all three of us are in this same podcast together is because we are the most partiest party people on D2C Twitter. If you don't know us or follow us or hang out with us, you're probably lame. (laughs) (laughs) The fans demand it, you know? Got to give the people what they want. (laughs) Yeah. But Mandy and I, Mandy was also um, head of uh, the retention department at CTC. So the two of us, um, were met met there and became the funniest and most popular people at the company. And <laughs> we um, both joined Bobby to lead growth and retention. Um, and we're still the best people in D2C Ecom. So what about you, Mandy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Shireen is enigmatic and has the best head of hair in all of e so I had to hitch my wagon to hers. 
Um, but we've just overlapped in a couple of different roles. And I think we have interesting shared experience and perspective from our um, time at Common Thread Collective leading agency teams and kind of the evolution of that entire team as retention was added on to growth services. Um, and then I've obviously partnered at Bobby, which is an incredibly high growth CPG rocket ship. Um, so that, but mostly we're just so fucking funny that we have to come on together. There you have it. There's your answer, folks. Uh, and it wasn't just because I invited them both in the same group DM. Definitely, <laughs> definitely wasn't that. So before I get into the first real question, that was, that was, uh, the intro. What's one thing that you didn't expect to be so different or was surprising between agency side and brand side and what, like, how how has this both experienced both sides of it now? What, how has that helped you evolve and grow or what have you learned from this? God, that's a really good question. I think for me, I didn't, it wasn't necessarily unexpected, but one of the benefits of being on the brand side, especially um, having a team like Bobby's is that we've got so many dedicated data analysts. And so being able to dive super deeply into all of the data that's available to us and really deeply understand the customer experience and sort of how, like what behaviors are people naturally taking? What levers can we pull with our marketing to change those behaviors? Um, so I, I think just being entrenched in a team where data was prioritized was a really delightful change. Not to say that that's not a priority agency side, but you're kind of meeting your clients where they are with their data sophistication. And so that can tend to hem you in. So I think the Bobby team is somewhat unique. Not every high growth startup this early stage has that sort of insight. Um, but that was definitely a pleasant finding for me in my time at Bobby. Yeah. And I think for me, it's just the speed at which work is, is done and the ability to be creative. So in an agency, you have, you know, you have your boss and then you have all the clients who are also your boss. So you have like 50 bosses and they all need to have hit their goals yesterday. So the, the need to be fast, to learn fast, the ability to look across hundreds of businesses and their metrics and see patterns and, you know, embed this playbook into yourself I think makes you a better marketer. Um, and I think agencies, you know, have to operationalize work in order to scale. So there's a lot of, um, you know, differs by, from agency to agency, but procedure needs to exist. Mm -hmm. And I think coming in house, there's a lot more room for creativity, for flexibility, to spend time to like, really craft something meaningful over a longer time horizon to focus on longer term growth. Mm -hmm. What does growth look like next year and in three years and in five years? And like, what do we need to build to get there? It's like a totally different game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely uh, different. Having been a freelancer, did an agency, been an agency employee, all that side as well. 
Uh, it's almost like, what have you done for me lately? What did you do this last week? How was yesterday? And it's so tough to be so focused on today and tomorrow when really that, and that's very short-term thinking. And that's very one day at a time, just trying to get these things checked off. Whereas on the brand side, um, it just seems like you have much more leeway and gr like growth and data and insight and teamwork to like work together for these longer term vision and goals. So yeah, it's really, yeah, really neat to hear that. I would also say like one thing that they have in common is you're, you always have to be selling, like whether it's to clients or whether it's to in-house stakeholders, like learning sales and just patience and presenting to people and bringing them along is a skill that will, you can take anywhere. Yeah. I think that's an incredible kind of crash course that you get agency side is really just learning how to craft a narrative, how to get buy-in for trying something new that maybe people are hesitant about, how to use data to tell a story um, and really just being comfortable presenting information staking your sort of position and backing it up. Um, so it's, it's interesting to, to work in-house with some people that are more comfortable with that than others, or who are more used to kind of going through that, um, consensus building process. Um, but definitely like, I think Shireen and I would both agree that spending at least a couple of years at an agency as a marketer is just an incredible, like up-leveling experience because of the way that you have to kind of anticipate every question that's going to come up and really think through every potential angle of what you're trying to propose and get the entire team bought, bought into it before you can actually action against anything. And doing that for multiple brands all at once. <laughs> it's not just, oh, I get to do it for one brand at a time. It's depending on the agency and what service you're providing. It's three, five, six, eight, and you're, if you're director level or manager, you have even more. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's an incredible start to uh, tee up this conversation. So now to the first main pillar is customer experience and how you guys think it's so key and the central focus to acquisition and retention. So, so many times the narrative is, oh, you want a good customer experience. And so people will stay with you. But it, the point you guys brought to me is that it's equally important on the acquisition side and needing to know your customers and obsessing over them for not just that immediate growth, but sustainable growth. So I wanted to open up that discussion on this question and either one of you can get started if uh, you want to jump in. Yeah, I think from an acquisition side, it's just understanding who your customer is and where they play. That's like the base level. But if you can truly build a customer experience that makes people love you, that's where it becomes that flywheel and you continue to get word of mouth referral. Um, and, and I think it also opens up opportunities for acquisition in terms of where are people doing research before they become a customer. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's also just like building brand value and staying power in into the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for the retention side, it's a little bit more clear. We're de I've definitely seen kind of a trend in retention leadership shifting. So it's not just overseeing the traditional marketing channels that 
our drivers of retention, but also overseeing the customer experience teams as well. Um, and I know like Eli Weiss, who's now at Jones Road Beauty, has been kind of a trailblazer in that area. Um, but definitely it's just getting the entire team to understand that retention is everyone's job and that it's the sum total of the customer experience, whether it's what they're seeing in an ad, what they're reading on a blog, how the checkout experience goes, what that post-purchase experience feels like, how quickly something's fulfilled, how good the unboxing feels, the quality of the product. Um, it has a lot less to do with what's the content of your email marketing and a lot more to do with the overall brand experience. Um, because I think one of the things marketers tend to forget is that ultimately if your product is not good and it doesn't serve a niche or a need in a person's life, they're not going to come back. It doesn't matter how many emails you send to them or how compelling your ad creative is. So, um, really just trying to instill that understanding across a team, I think is an incredible unlock for retention in general. How do we make sure that it's not as siloed off as acquisition versus retention? You're mentioning how it's we're starting to see more of that combining and more teamwork, but especially when you're working with freelancers and agencies and contractors and you have an in-house person, it all seems so siloed. You're, you're responsible for the copy. You're responsible for the design. You run the Facebook ads over here. It's all separated out. How, how would you try to recommend to brand founders and folks that work with brand owners to think differently about that? How would you set it up? What are some wins that you guys have experienced in the past on the agency side or on the brand side? I'm a mentor in um, the CMO at Igloo Coolers. And I'll never forget, he gave me this little nugget and he's now like the, the CMO of their Igloo Coolers holding company. Um, He's like, it's all about uh, like everyone being in full alignment of what the brand is, who the brand is, the brand identity, everyone, every single person in the company being able to like recite the brand principles and like, and be aligned on it. And that is really hard to do. And I think it starts with research data, like one-to-one -one customer research, customer data, um, and then like defining what your brand is and then having your whole team adopt it. And that's like the biggest hurdle. And if you can like get that piece right, then everything else can like look to that as, you know, the North Star. Mm -hmm. I think that is accurate and incredibly challenging in this new remote landscape that we're all operating within. I think it was hard enough to get individuals and separate teams oriented toward the same goals when we were all in office and now we're all <laughs> far flung across the country. Um, I don't think there's a silver bullet other than just being conscious and intentional about it and recognizing that things probably are not sticking for people until you've said them so many times that you're annoyed by hearing yourself say them. So <laughs> I think just being really conscious of how much information needs to get shared and reshared um, so that it's really top of mind for people as everyone is going about their disparate tasks throughout the day. Um, but that it's tough. I, I can't say that we have the silver bullet for you. Um, one thing that I did think was helpful with Bobby is having retention on the growth team. 
Um, so everybody is really focused on what is the full funnel experience look like and what is everybody working on and how does it all work together and when are we sharing insights, what sort of messaging or um, audience segmentation is working at different points of the funnel so that we're all learning from one another. So team structure can play a big part in that as well. And acronyms, lots of acronyms. You just got to turn everything into an acronym. <laughs> Jack up those acronym numbers. They're too low. You got to just more, a whole, you want a whole alphabet soup of acronyms. Yeah, no, I'm joking. But like Igloo, Coolers, like they did, they turned their brand into acronyms, like going back to them and how they did it, that everyone could remember. And they had like acronyms for their personas, acronyms for their brand identity. And I think, yeah, like having that alignment, full funnel, and having like that deep brand identity and understanding is the difference between a brand that grows and like a legacy brand and like a brand that stays. I have to disagree on the acronyms. I'm sorry. <laughs> the acronyms. I think acronyms are one of the greatest gatekeeping measures in existence in technology and e-com. I think everybody wants to come up with some new bullshit a cost and CAC, whatever. And it keeps people who are insecure about asking what that means in the dark. I'm Googling acronyms over here all damn day. My <laughs> friend Larissa is a surgeon. They implemented an anti-acronym campaign at her hospital because it was confusing so many people and leading to poor patient experience. But then someone turned it into an acronym. Stop using acronyms now, SWAN. Swan. <laughs> we have a problem as a society. <laughs> with acronyms. Wow. WTF. Stop. <laughs> what the fudge? What the fuck? Let me Google wow. that one. Swan. Yeah. So stop. Stop using. With. Oh, no, stop, stop with acronyms. stop with acronyms now. Oh yeah. Stop with that's acronyms. That's now. better. Wow. We should. Swan. I'll let Larissa know. You let her know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. No, this is exactly why we had you guys on. So you can disagree with each other from time to time. It happens regularly. So, yeah. I'm okay, gearing so... up to disagree with Mandy on her next point. So. <laughs> Just getting ready for I'm it. I'm ready. Okay. Awesome. So uh, we, we know there's so much talk. Uh, and conversation in our community and online about paid ads and paid growth and you your customer acquisition cost and your ROAS, your MER, all this stuff. How do you plan ahead or how much of it can you plan ahead for non-paid activities, organic and then these other word of mouth, uh, organic social or referrals or Affiliate even is technically a different way of paying people. You're paying your customers instead of Facebook and Google. So how do we think about organic in terms of growth and retention as well? Oh man, that's, that's, I know we're going to talk about attribution later, but that is like a big uh, black hole for understanding where people are coming from. Um, the way that I forecast, and this is the forecasting methodology we used at CTC, is you look at acquisition as a percentage of organic versus paid acquisition. 
And there's so much overlap between those two worlds that I think this is where the art um, comes into the science. And it's hard to know how much to invest in organic efforts. And I think that's where I like lean on the income statement or the financial model to tell, to answer that question. Cause we can pretend to guess all day long where people are coming from or use the fanciest tools and like they are helpful and they can definitely provide insight into where to put budget for certain things. But there's, there's a lot of other growth levers. Like, you know, I've learned that PR media is a massive, massive growth lever that um, a lot of growth marketers like don't really tap into and it's harder to measure direct response from, but it's the difference between like a sale today and like many sales for the future of your business. And how do you measure that? So that's where it's like, you look at the financial model and, and how do you calculate CAC? Do you look at just ad spend? Do you look at all marketing spend? Do you look at every marketing head and sales head in your business? Um, it's really hard, but I think you need to, this is, this goes back to understanding your customer. If you have a product that requires a lot of research, then maybe your paid social acquisition looks like trash. And you might think I'm going to turn it off because it looks like trash, but you might, you might also find that it takes people five to 10 visits to make a conversion. And in those five to 10 visits, they're coming to your site from different sources and it's the third party sponsored content, or it's a press hit that tipped them over the edge. And, um, yeah, you, you can you can get pretty good at measuring, but at the same time, I think that goes back to like understanding a, a customer and how they actually make a buying decision. I also think there's sort of a repurposing versus resource commitment like element that never really gets talked about. So specifically, if we're looking at like SEO, generating a ton of content for search optimization specifically doesn't only impact organic search traffic. It's going to give you, you know, it, certainly like in the case of Bobby, when people are researching baby formula, they are looking to understand the ingredients, the science, the way that the formulation is made, what makes this formula different. Um, so having that content is also a conversion optimization lever for us. It's something that can also be used in email campaigns. Um, there's a lot of content that we generate for, or Bobby generates for like feeding and parenting advice. So it's supporting the community. It's keeping people really engaged with the brand longer term. So I think that there's a lot of these sort of heavy resource like organic plays that can be repurposed across the funnel that I think are more meaningful. And there are these always on tactics that are generating high quality traffic for you. Um, they're not going to give you the short wins that paid advertising well, but they're important to have present. And I think it's just tougher to make that sell because it takes so long to see results. A quick reminder from our sponsor, ShareID. Find your next lifetime customers by providing verified discount codes based on occupation or life stage. 
Speak directly to veterans, students, teachers, first responders, and continue to tailor your messaging to them in the future with post-purchase emails and text messages. Make them feel seen with your brand by using ShareID to seamlessly verify their email in seconds during the purchase process. Go to shareid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Yeah, that time horizon, that window, uh, you guys were mentioning it earlier as well on the agency mm -hmm. side versus brand side of, oh yeah, agencies like more immediate than brand side. Oh yeah, we can look ahead a few years from now. Um, how, at what point does a brand start to, how does that evolve organic versus paid and how, what, is there a right time? Is there a revenue amount? Is it years in business? Is it customer size? Like what are some of those variables and factors that might help, help us out of like directing of like, oh yeah, this is now when you should be doubling down or spending more time and resources on organic. Yeah. It always depends on like the business and what the end goal is, but I, always lean on like building a business organic first and having that solid organic foundation and the foundation and Mandy looking at you retention, <laughs> but um, just like having that solid foundation before you layer paid on top. And I think a lot of businesses, small businesses, bless their souls, bless their little hearts. They want to go straight into the game spending half of their revenue on ads thinking like, yeah, we're, we're going to fix this later. Mm -hmm. There is no later. Like you're now stuck in this place where you have to keep spending mm -hmm. to survive. So I think it starts day one. And I think the businesses that I've seen that have are mature, um, the businesses that are like 20 million plus 50 million plus, like they generally spend, you know, 10% on, on ads, um, and paid channels. So it's like the ones that don't get that big are spending way more. And I don't know if there's a cor direct correlation where they never get that big because they're spending that much of their revenue on it. Um, but I do know that the ones that are that big are not spending that much. Yeah. I think it's pretty rare to see an e-com business lay that foundation before they start generating traffic. It's And it's tough as a business owner to want to invest in things that you know won't make you money right away. But like certainly in my years of consulting on email and SMS, it's rare for a business to come to an agency for help getting all of their foundational automations or their segmentation and personalization in place before they start driving paid traffic. And really the smartest thing that you can do is to figure out how to convert your paid traffic into your owned channels as quickly as possible. So ultimately, if I were starting my own e-com business, which I probably never will, I guess never say never, um, I would want to have an incredibly robust email and SMS automation program in place before I sent any paid traffic to the site. Um, but I think that business owners get really stuck on seeing return on investment from every channel immediately. And they don't understand that that upfront investment is going to help them drive better LTV, which makes their paid efforts much more efficient on the back end. So especially for resource trapped orgs, making that small investment and getting a lot of the foundational stuff set up first 
will pay dividends later on um, rather than kind of having to be in this like constant acquisition mode where you maybe aren't retaining people as well as you should. So someone who's listening to this and hears that they should have been focused on this on day one and they're already past day one. <laughs> they're a current brand founder, they're a current brand owner, three months, three years. They're, they've been running their brand and business for a while. What would be some advice to someone that knows they need to spend more time and effort on their email or SMS or this whole customer experience? Like, let's give them a few ideas of where to start. And maybe these are the quickest wins or simplest things, or they don't require a ton of technical outside of implementation from someone else, like an agency or a consultant or developers and things like this. Like from both of your perspectives on the acquisition or retention side, how, how would you guys go about helping someone um, start uh, on day today versus day one? Mm -hmm. They can't go back. There's no time machine yet, unfortunately. So where would you guys start? Yeah, I would say top priority would be getting really strong contact capture tactics in place on your site. So that could be email and SMS pop-up. It can be making sure that you've got opt-in at checkout optimized, um, but ultimately an, an optimized pop-up for an e-com brand should be generating an eight to 10% signup rate. So figuring out what you need to do to get there, whether that's testing timing or incentives or messaging or creative, whatever, um, that's going to get you a lot of really good list growth um, really quickly. Of course, be careful about incentives because you don't want to incentivize too steeply because then you're going to have crap leads and they're not going to convert. Um, but having a handful of foundational flows live is really key. So obviously a welcome series is probably going to be among your top revenue driving flows. There are people who are new to the brand. It's your opportunity to educate them about what sets you apart, the breadth of your products. Um, and hopefully you've got a compelling brand origin story. Not everybody does, um, but that's a good opportunity to, to share that. And then certainly having abandonment campaigns, so cart abandonment, browse abandonment, making sure that you're turning all of those window shoppers into actual customers. Those are really going to be the big money makers, but it's also super important to have a post-purchase experience in um, live, so post-purchase flow to kind of build hype for people after they place an order, express gratitude, help them get the most out of the product. Um, help them understand how to return things if it doesn't work out, getting people to reorder, getting that coveted second purchase. Um, that sounds like a lot, but ultimately, if you're using a, a platform like Klaviyo, their tools are super, super simple. Um, I'm not a technical person at all, and I can build an email flow <laughs> in Klaviyo, um, and I could not code my way out of a well. So um, I think it seems harder than it actually is. And there's a ton of resources online about how to structure those sorts of things um, to just kind of get that foundation in place so that you're nurturing people and keeping them coming back. Yeah, Shereen, before you jump in, Mandy, I don't know if anyone could code their way out of a well. <laughs> I don't think that's, I like, I like, I like, I like, I got what you said, but no one can, you're stuck in a well. What's code going to do? What if you could code a 3D printer that printed stairs or a rope? I don't know how 3D printing works. 
What? <laughs> me neither. But I guess you got me there. Okay. <laughs> Shereen, you, you, you go ahead now. I'm just thinking, like, if you were in a well and you had the ability to code, couldn't you just call someone to get you out of a well? Okay. Probably. I just want to make sure we're aligned here. Okay. <laughs> um, from that, I can't. I can't code a phone. <laughs> From an acquisition standpoint, I think it's the number one thing you can do is figure out how to create as much content as possible and not just, you know, any kind of content, but going back to the customer experience content that your customers actually care about um, in as many channels as you can. So yes, write blog articles, write pillar pages about mid-funnel and high-intent search topics that you know people are searching. Um, get on TikTok. <laughs> what does that mean for your business? Figure it out. Um, but there's also a tool. I, I think like, you know, if you're looking for conversions that you don't or ways to optimize for conversions that don't require spending more money, there's a tool called Disco disconetwork.com. It used to be um, co-op and it's basically like a post uh, it takes over your uh, post-purchase order confirmation page and then drops in an upsell widget um, and allows you to show other brands and you can be shown on other brands post-purchase widgets so it's kind of like a SaaS partnership you know um, tool uh, and I think also just like if you're a subscription business, there's ways to optimize for lost revenue. Like if uh, there's a tool called ProfitWell, if you're, um, you know, people on your subscriptions, credit cards are getting declined, there's revenue that you can capture that way. So if you're like really looking for additional budget to start organic efforts, there's a way to like, you know, add some more cash to your flow to, to be able to like reinvest. Mm -hmm. Those are some options. I also think that the CX experience shouldn't be overlooked early on as well. I think with a lot of small e-com brands, founders are doing customer service or they have a couple of folks that are dedicated to it and doing white glove. But the more you can go above and beyond for your customers, especially if they have a bad experience early on, the better positioned you're going to be to build word of mouth. Um, you know, people... I tell the same stupid story about Brooklyn and over and over, like when they were a newer brand, I ordered a duvet cover from them and the seam fell out after like six months and I got in touch and I was like, I know it's been six months, but would you guys replace this? And they replaced it for free and they didn't ask any questions. And I talk about that all the time still. And I don't even have Brooklyn and sheets anymore because I moved to Italic. Don't ask me to get started on Italic. That could be an entire podcast. Um, but so they didn't retain you then. Well, no, <laughs> but I still refer people. I'm not even a customer and I still refer people. So I think to the extent that you can just be human, be personal, do that extra outreach when someone has a negative experience, um, make sure that your comms are really empathetic. Like that sort of stuff goes a long way for generating just overall positive social sentiment. And, you know, you see people share emails or responses from CX on Instagram stories or on Twitter, and that stuff has a longer life um, 
So I think most people are already investing in CX. It's just a matter of like, how are you approaching it? How do you make it white glove? How do you make it really personal? And where can you go above and beyond to create those memorable experiences? Sorry, Brooklyn, and I'll buy something for you again soon. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's more common for, I don't know about more common, but again, more vocal. We hear about the disgruntled customer turned brand advocate then, yeah, I'm happy with the product. And it, uh, it was as expected. <laughs> they, they, they're like, okay, I was cool. I'm fine. I'll pro- I might come back and purchase. But that, oh, wow moment that took them from the Delta for bad to never buying again to rah, rah, cheering for the brand, uh, I think is, is key to note that they're often more vocal, so. And I think um, the bar right now too is so low still. <laughs> like I know <laughs> in the deep depths of the pandemic, but there's still like businesses are understaffed. There's still supply chain issues. So a lot of things are going wrong and a lot of people are just pissed off at the businesses that they're interacting with day in and day out. Um, I saw a tweet the other day that was like, by the time you're 30, you have at least one airline that you've refused you'll ever fly again. <laughs> so I think if you're looking at a case study or a per case study of what not to do with customer service. It's just look at any airline. Um, but I think there's that's a real opportunity to stand out because I think people are just so accustomed to having crap experiences or um, talking to reps that aren't enabled to do anything for them. So giving your CX team the power to to make things right and go above and beyond, I think, is a huge unlock. Yep. Okay. That's awesome. That's good to uh, get some organic and uh, ideas and content and tying it all together. So, Shireen, without taking the entire rest of the episode, attribution, does it matter? How does it matter? Does it even matter at all? It kind of matters. I mean, it matters depending on the size of your business um, and how reliant you are on paid. And I think it matters less when your acquisition strategy is more diversified and you rely on brand building and awareness building and acquisition and conversion through channels that can't directly be measured. Um, Again, going back to the examples of press, media, third-party sponsored content, educational content, research, and also depends on like what your product is and how much research is required. Um, But if you're a brand that is like impulse by... 50% of your revenue is you have a two MER and your, all of your budget is, and all of your eggs are in the paid social basket, then attribution is like super, super important. Um, I think if you're a business that is a little bit farther in its life cycle or like growth stage and you're trying to capture market share and you're trying to own, you know, more dollar share in a real way and like compete with, you know, industry big dogs, then that becomes less important and it becomes like an impressions game and it becomes like how many people can you get in front of 
total for the lowest cost total mm-hmm. and it, and penetrate those people repeatedly in different ways um, so that they're hearing about you from, you know, everywhere they turn. That's like a different game. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, okay. So attribution can matter. It doesn't always matter and it can be helpful. So uh, pretty much we need to host a Twitter spaces about attribution and we'll get the, our favorite tools to sponsor it. And we need to go in more in depth about this, right? Or, or You know what? We should host like an actual wrestling match with <laughs> the big attribution platforms. And it's like, or arm wrestling. Mm-hmm. I've heard yeah. Mandy, you, your arm wrestling is kind of your thing. It's not She's my thing twice now, <laughs> twice now. I've met Shireen in person three times and two of the three times she has challenged me to arm wrestle. The first time we were at a group dinner and I don't even know why it happened, but I publicly embarrassed her and then she challenged me to a rematch and I beat her again. And then we went to a Bobby offsite a couple months ago and she made me do it again. And I don't want to embarrass her, but I've only gotten stronger since that first time. Thank you to Cody Rigsby at Peloton. Um, but yeah. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. <laughs> Apparently, according to the security guy at the bar where she challenged me last time, it's the length of my forearm. It's Yeah, if you have a shorter forearm length, you're going to win. Yeah. So for all you e-com operators out there, <laughs> take notes. With all, for all you e-com operators with questions about attribution, we are going to settle this with an arm wrestling competition hosted by beep and beep. Redacted. Um, <laughs> Redacted yeah. brands. The two yeah. that you know. <laughs> yeah. I, so, I mean, okay. I, think that's why, I think that's why it was such a hot button topic too is because people look at it, people slice slice it in so many ways that like you know we talked about how do you define cac people slice that in so many different ways what's your attribution model i i mean it is important attribution is important but i think it's for optimizing what you're already doing Mm -hmm. oh sorry about that it's for optimizing what you're already doing and not necessarily for like creating you know massive growth strides mm-hmm. I, have nothing okay. I don't have any good don't that's fine there's too good. much tension in this conversation <laughs> i want no part of it <laughs> okay we uh we i'm gonna attribute that to the end of that uh question mandy i'm gonna come to you now mm-hmm. um the coveted 20 percent of your email uh or sorry 20 percent of your revenue must come from email or sms if you're not at that 20% mark, what are you doing? You suck. you got to hire my agency. I'm going to 10x your email results. Like a little hyperbole and a little uh, poking fun there. But wh- wh- how do you like view that? And where should your revenue come in? What are the things that might influence that? Yeah. So I think I ultimately think that 
if you're looking at email and SMS collectively, you should be seeing somewhere roughly in the neighborhood of 20 to 35, maybe 40% of your revenue coming from those channels. It is not hard and fast, and there's a lot of factors that go into it. Certainly your list size for both email and SMS are going to be probably the biggest factor there. So the maturity of those two channels. One thing that most brands don't seem to have a super great handle on is how much overlap actually exists between their email and SMS lists um, and how much cannibalization you might be seeing across those two channels. So that's why I think it's helpful to look at them separately to really understand how much revenue they're each driving. But ultimately, email and SMS should be planned in cohesion because there is generally a lot of overlap between those two lists. Um, I would say if you're getting higher than like 50%, you're probably not investing in acquisition as much as you should be. Um, so if you don't have any paid ads turned on, if you don't have a healthy amount of organic traffic coming in, ultimately what is known about the ability to retain customers and overarching repurchase rate and the rate at which people churn due to lack of engagement or unsubscribes from email and SMS that list, you can only get so much out of yeah. an email list unless it continues to grow. So if you're not investing in those other channels, then you're not getting new, fresh blood coming into those lists. And I think you'll eventually start to see the quality decay and the revenue will dip accordingly. Um, but like everything else in e-com, it depends. Yes, uh, it depends, but you explained a few a few reasons why, and that's most important. So um, that is one thing I do yeah. just have to say. Please, I don't want to like shit on every ESP out there, and I don't really want to get into attribution too much. <laughs> For the love of God, don't look at view through attribution on your email campaigns. Like most ESPs are set up to default to view through. So if somebody opens your email campaign and seven days later they convert, they're going to attribute revenue to that campaign. And so like 99% of email platforms are overinflating how much revenue that channel is actually driving. Um, so I would say make sure that you're tightening up those windows to get a really clear understanding of how much each of those channels is actually contributing to the overall revenue mix. Good. Yes. And of attribution. <laughs> final, f final uh bow tied on attribution there um awesome okay we're gonna move on to uh my favorite part uh, is questions from twitter so at the lexi bennett she is awesome email marketer and she had a few questions for us so the first one is how are you coordinating launches or announcements across multiple channels especially keeping in mind the different customer segments, such as VIP groups versus SMS versus your social communities or first time people, things like that. How are you guys coordinating that um, or keeping that in mind when you're thinking growth and retention? That's a big, that's a big one um, that, you know, requires a lot of cross team collaboration if you're in-house. Um, because it touches so many things, you know, like if you're, if you're launching something new, you're making a big announcement, 
not only do you need to understand who you're speaking to and what channels and tailor the messaging for all those channels that are owned by, you know, different channel owners, but you also need to bring in your CX team to know exactly how to respond to all of the various questions that all of those different cohorts might have. Mandy, I'll punt to you. I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think CX involvement is a big one too. I think a lot of orgs just don't have any sort of feedback loop or they don't have somebody on marketing who's liaising with um, the CX team so that they know what launches are coming, what promos are coming and how to talk to their customers about it. So that's a big one. Um, Certainly as a retention marketer, I'm always like, let's tell the customers first. Um, But I think tapping into your email and SMS list to understand who truly is a VIP. A lot of brands use an SMS list as a VIP list. So that's kind of, you know, the right channel for those short or urgent or timely messages. Um, So that's always a good place to start when you're rolling out something big. Um, But if you do have a loyalty program or you have something that's tiered, definitely using that sort of incentive of being the first to hear about new products or new releases can be a nice driver of engagement. Um, so I think it's it's all about just really understanding what was the intention that you set with the way that you've designed your retention program and what are the norms and expectations for each of those channels and following that accordingly. Um, but definitely, I think customers first all the time. And then tactically in a remote world, it's you put it into the PM system with all the tags and colors and people assigned, and then you got to explain it, re-explain it, put it in Slack, send an email, have a meeting, Mm -hmm. send another email. Somebody asks, send another Slack. What are they supposed to do? And you tell them it's in Asana and they say that they never got it. And then you tag them and then they're like, oh. (laughs) Oh, okay. I mean- if, if she's asking, how do you actually execute it? I don't, there's no answer to that question, okay. especially in a remote world. <laughs> sure. No, that's fine. I think that, I think the first, your, the first answers were more in line. Of, yeah, uh, we'll give the you question. the soft fluff, the soft fluffy answer. But when it comes to tactically executing it, that's when everything just falls apart. <laughs> yeah. So how, is there, um, do you have different goals or expected response rates or expected like conversion rates for different cohorts or different like, oh, brand new customers versus returning customers when you're launching something like this? Or is it kind of just like, all right, let's put it out there. It's time to launch. And then like, how do we think about like goal setting or the forecasting at all? Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would look at it from a top down approach. So like, is this new product? how much revenue, what, what is the revenue stream that we are expecting this product to contribute to the top line of the business? Um, or what do we need it to contribute? And then break out the channel goals based on historicals. So if we historically see, um, you know, and if you're a business and you're launching your second product ever, you only have like one, you know, data set to go off of, there's not much to go off of. So I think like having some le- level of channel goals, but not such tight granularity on what you think is going to happen because you're you're not going to know. And I think it's more important 
to monitor and to be prepared to react than to go into it with like hard and fast, like numbers for every little, you know, detail. Um, because you're doing a lot of work upfront for something that you might not know how, how Mm -hmm. it's going to land. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all about continuing to analyze and optimize and then treating your, this, I mean, this is, this is a retention question, but from an acquisition standpoint, from a paid standpoint, treating your existing customers as new customers to your new product. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say, I think it depends too what the new product is. Is it complementary to something that's core in your product line? Is it completely divergent? Is it maybe targeting an audience of people who haven't purchased your initial products? Like maybe the one product that you had wasn't a fit for other people. So I think you kind of have to look at where does it fit in your overall catalog and where does it fit in your customers' lives to understand how to set those goals and how to prioritize the messaging. Um, So, you know, if you're a skincare brand and you started with just a cleanser and you're launching a moisturizer, everybody's going to want to hear about that. If you started with a cleanser and now you have a sensitive skin cleanser, like you're probably going to want to think about how you can reactivate people who maybe didn't purchase your initial product because it wasn't a fit for them. So kind of just depends on where it fits for your consumers. Oh yeah, that's great. That's a really good point about the, how it fits in the product uh, purpose as well. So that's good. Uh, we kind of answered the second question in terms of aligning messaging and customer experience. Um, so I was kind of all grouped in the first question. And then her last one uh, was, I've had some clients ask me about when it's best to have in-house entry-level hires versus agency versus in-house expert hires and more senior people. What are your guys' takes on in-house versus agency? What that time is? Is it like a budget thing? Is it how fast do you want to grow? What what would be your guys' thoughts on this? I think it has a lot to do with the depth of a founder's experience. So if you're someone who is brand new <clears throat> to e-com, but you've got a great product idea and you've put a lot of research into going to market, you probably don't have the depth of experience in each channel to understand where to start and how to resource against it. So I think that's where freelancers and agencies can be incredibly powerful because they can bring you along in the process. I think as we talked about at the top of the call, um, there's a lot of like education and um, like bringing people along and helping when you're in an agency, you're trying to help your clients understand why you're proposing what you're proposing and what your like hypothesized result is going to be. And I think that that helps educate people really well. So I've definitely worked in on the agency side as a strategist alongside a really green email marketer with the intention that they were going to work with our agency for a few months and then bring it back in-house. Um, and I think that that can be really educational for those people. So I think it's really thinking about like, how are you filling a skills gap? Because if there's nobody internally who has a really great understanding of how things have to look and what results you should be getting. Um, it's just going to be the blind leading the blind if you try to hire green people internally. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. Like hiring an agency to fill gaps 
where you have skills, where you're missing skills is super valuable while you can think through resourcing. Um, and oftentimes working with an external partner helps you understand. Ex- sometimes you get, you, you understand what you want out of them that you're not getting out of them that can help inform the type of hire to make. So it is very much like a learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think also like going back to the business financials and the goals and what each person would be held to. And if it's a major goal and a big part of the business and instrumental in hitting the business revenue, then that should probably be a senior hire. Mm-hmm. And then they can they can figure out how to build the team based on their expertise. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I think there's a big difference too. You can't just say, should it be a freelancer or an agency or an in-house hire? Um, certainly I, as a freelancer have been doing email marketing for 15 years. I've been doing retention for 10. So I'm going to have a different skill set than somebody who was, you know, a one man or woman show in house at a brand for one year. It's just different. Um, I think a lot of agencies end up hiring very green people, um, because ultimately the best way for them to control cost and margin is through the like economy of their people. Um, that's not true of all agencies. It's different, (laughs) but I think that like the biggest thing to me when the, like, when people start shit talking agencies or freelancers on Twitter is I just think of, I think it's a Brene Brown quote, people, people, people are people, 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 like people have different skill sets and talents and expertise and background and, great people end up at agencies and, and shitty people end up at agencies. And the same is true in-house and the same is true with freelance. So I think it's really about understanding to Shireen's point, like where are you trying to go and how quickly are you trying to get there and what level of sophistication are you going to need in strategy and execution to get you to that point? And I think it's fine too. Like, I can't believe I'm saying this because this was such a pain point when I was on running an agency team, but it's fine to ask to interview the people that you're going to work with at an agency. The issue is shit or get off the pot. If you interview someone, you love them, you need to sign immediately because they can be reallocated elsewhere. And it's really challenging for agencies to continue to like hold resourcing for people. Um, but yeah, I think it's just about understanding like who's the actual individual that you're going to work with and how are they going to fill a skills gap? Excellent point. And um, we're going to shit and get off the pot with one more question here from Twitter. <laughs> uh, Mr. Dave Rukic, uh, previous guest on the show. He asks, how do you consider deliverability and email and what segmentation uh, are you guys doing now in 2022? And has that differed and evolved over the years? Um, probably in reference to um iOS 15, the email one versus iOS 14, which is the big ads um, change last year. So just how did, how are you guys thinking about that? Yeah. So in the great scheme of things, good deliverability tactics haven't changed much in the last few years. The real, you know, Google's obviously super cryptic about all of their algorithms, but they are upfront in saying that the way that people engage with your emails is a driving factor of whether they get placed in the inbox or they get put into the spam folder. Um, And obviously for e-com 
almost everybody who has an e-com brand, the lion's share of your emails list, your email list is going to be Gmail domains. Um, so really when it comes to engagement, you want to make sure that you're only mailing to people who actually want to hear from you. You want to follow compliant practices when you're opting people in. You want to set reasonable expectations. You need to pay attention to how people are engaging with your flow emails in your campaigns day to day to understand what's resonating and what's not, or if you're over communicating to them. Um, I think the biggest change with iOS 15 is like, you just need to throw open rates out the window. They're not really reliable and they've always kind of been a vanity metric anyway. If people are opening your emails and they're not clicking through and going to the site, your email probably isn't working. I think there's a lot of marketers that want to believe like, well, it's an impression and it made them think of me and now they're going to go directly to the site. And I think that that's more of an edge case than some people want to believe. So it's really about making sure that your segmentation parameters are tight, it, you know, depending on the consideration phase for your product. Maybe you're only emailing people who've engaged within the last 90 days. Maybe it's broader. Maybe you have some frequency modeling set up and you're mailing your hyper-engaged people more regularly than your less engaged people. Um, but the, the best practices, and I hate to use the phrase best practices, Alex P is going to come for me. Uh, <laughs> but essentially like the, the things that get you into the inbox that we know from ISPs have not changed in the last couple of years. So just forget your open rates and focus on your click engagement. Awesome. Shireen, would you like to add anything to that? I disagree with everything you just said. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Finish. That's it. <laughs> End of sentence. And, uh, well, yeah, that was a lovely way to, and no such, no best practices. Uh, go check out Alex's <laughs> newsletter. It's really good. Uh, but anyway, thanks you, thanks for you ladies for joining Mr. Lady on my show. Uh, where would you like to point people to, to ask them to bother you about attribution, about hiring you guys, about learning more, just talking about something that you said earlier in the episode? Where would you like to send them and point them to? You can find me on Twitter at Mandy Moshe, Mandy I. Thanks a lot, Mom. And um, if you are looking for strategic support with retention, I am taking new clients at residentconsulting.com. You can find me on Twitter too, Shireen Aubert. And you can like my tweets. You can engage with them. You can retweet them. You can tell me I'm funny and smart. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a win-win for everybody. Perfect. <laughs> Go hire Mandy, like and retweet Shereen's tweets. Perfect. Awesome CTAs. I love how you have to have two different ones. Uh, thanks so much for your guys' time. Really appreciate it. This is fun. Wait, before oh. we go, what do you guys what do you guys think about two CTAs? <laughs> I think Is it a is it a faux pas? I think two CTAs are no, that's a whole different episode. I don't know. I don't think I can get into it. Should Mandy and I start a podcast two called C Two CTAs? Two CTAs, one email. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Um, I'm not gonna entertain that. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't really know. There's. It depends. Yeah. It depends. Yeah. There you go. Perfect answer. All right. 
And then we need to start another podcast called It Depends, where every answer to every question is It Depends. Yeah. That, Love it. That would be, um, that'd be really helpful. <laughs> I think we get a lot of value out of that. But uh, thanks for listening and thanks for enjoying this uh, more entertaining and fun, lighthearted, but awesome, intelligent conversation as well. If you are listening still, please like, subscribe, follow, and uh, tweet at me if you liked it. Um, Tweet at me if you didn't like it, and I'll try to do better next time. And uh, I'll catch you on the next episode.